So I wonder how many come this morning with some problem in their life bigger than themselves. How many come with problems much larger than you are able to handle? And yet the first thing we do is search for an answer in our own street. How can I fix this issue in my life? We would like to welcome you to Getting in the Word with Pastor Stuart Guthrie. Pastor Stewart is the teaching pastor of Family Bible Fellowship in Early Branch, South Carolina, and he has been teaching through a series on the book of John. We hope that you will join us as we begin Getting in the Word. Here is Pastor Stewart. We have finished up John chapter 5, the chapter that pointed to the deity of Christ. I hope that you file that away in your memory bank so that when you are approached by someone that discourages you from believing the deity of Christ, you will be able to pull that chapter out of your memory bank and be able to defend why Jesus Christ is Lord. Because John chapter 5 makes a very convincing case through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as he defends his equality with the Father. This week we transition into chapter 6. Not away from the deity of Christ, because the deity of Christ really is pointed at Christ everywhere he goes and in everything he does in many ways. He is still, by way of doing miracles, we will see, working, proving that he is who he claims to be, that is God in flesh. But the focus isn't so much on the deity of Christ here, but rather on the deed of Christ, on the miracle that we're going to see. And if we even zoom in past that and go deeper into the text, I believe there is a greater lesson for us even to learn from the text. One that I believe not one single person in this room can escape. Because I believe it applies to every single one of us. Believer, unbeliever, Jew or Gentile. The reality is this God word impacts every single soul here this morning. The overarching lesson that I want you to leave today understanding is this truth. Men are like the gods they serve. Women are like the gods they serve. Children are like the gods they serve. The reality that I want you to see today is the fact that uh, the way we live our lives is done by the way by what we believe about the God we worship. A weak view of God in your life will result in a weak life lived for God. Because the reality is we conduct ourselves according to the concept of the God to whom we bow, to whom we worship. So who we worship... And what we think about the one we worship will determine how we live our lives and how we function. And that's why I say we are like the gods we serve. My prayer is that you serve the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whom sent Jesus Christ so that we might live the victorious Christian life. I want each of us to leave here today with a big view of God. And sometimes we just need to be reminded how big God really is in our lives. I'm reminded of people throughout all of the Bible that are 
that had a big view of God. I bet when I ask you, who in the Bible do you know of that had a big view of God? There are several people who start popping up in your mind. But I chose two, two that impact me. Every time I think about the power of God and how big God is, I think of these two people. The first one is David. Remember David there as he stood before that giant that's said to be at least 10 foot tall Goliath? You think he had a big view of God? You better bet he did. 1 Samuel 17, 44-45 says, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the bird of the sky and the beast of the field. And then listen to the response of this man because his God's a big God. He says, Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have taunted. Big view of God? Yes, sir. Big view of God. Can I translate this for you in Stuart Guthrie's transliteration? You ain't got nothing on our God, big boy. What if we faced our problems like that in life? How about King Asa? His view of God's so big that I even named one of my children after him. Remember that? There in 2 Chronicles 14, 10 to 11, he stands up against this Ethiopian. They, they've had peace in the land for many years. Why? Because they followed the ways of the Lord. But then all of a sudden, out of the blue, it says that they were about to go to battle with the Ethiopians. And so this is what it says in chapter 4, 10 to 11, as Asa, Asa went out to meet him. That, that, that doesn't seem like a big deal, but if you remember, King Asa had about 580,000 soldiers on his team. The Ethiopians had a million point three. A little big difference there, huh? And the text says, Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up in battle formation in the valley of Zephna at Merashah. Then Asa called to the Lord and his God and said, the Lord, Lord, there is no one beside you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. He admits his weakness. So help us. Oh, Lord, our God, for we what? We trust in you. He's as big as his God is. And in your name, we have come against this multitude. Oh, Lord, you are our God. Let no man prevail against you. Does he have a big view of God? You better bet he does. I think he had a very big God. Listen, we are like the gods we serve. And John 6 is going to point to this reality over and over and over that Jesus Christ, listen, is the Son of God. And that He, Christ, is God in flesh, all-powerful. And He is going to teach these men a great lesson in their lives, which I believe will all translate to me and you, and it will be a lesson for each one of us to take home today. And so let's begin, if you will, by turning to our text again, six, John 6, 1-15. This portion of Scripture is powerful. It is a powerful miracle which we are going to see. It's one that is written in all four Gospels. Matthew chapter 14, Mark chapter 6, Luke 9, and here John 6 this morning. It's the only miracle listed in all four Gospels other than the resurrection. Why? 
Maybe because it's the biggest that we will see take place in the ministry of Jesus. Again, other than the resurrection, because if the resurrection happens not, then we are to be most pitied. But it's the biggest because it's impacted so many. It's it's said that there's over 5,000 people present before this miracle. Some suggest that even close to 25,000. Now, I'm not here to get into numbers. 5,000, 25,000, does it matter? It's a lot of people. And there's over at least 5,002 witnesses. Because there's at least mother and children available as well, as we'll see in another book. It's the highlight of Jesus' public ministry. So much so that we'll see at the end they try to take him by force and make him the king. Because why? They're waiting on a king to come and to conquer and rule over the empire. They, they looked for a Messiah on a white horse, but yet they got one that came and served on a donkey. Yet he is still God. It's an amazing miracle we're about to see. The ruler of the time is Herod Antipas. This was the son of Herod the Great. Remember Herod the Great? What did he do when he had heard from the Magi? He tried to kill all of the children so he could eliminate Jesus, the birth of this child who would be made king. This is this man's son. And you can imagine what Jesus is thinking at the end of John 6 when it says they tried to take him and make him king. This man might just be as crazy as his father. Now, he ain't scared, but he knows it's not his time yet. His time has not yet come. And so, with all that in mind, there are three major things that I want you to take home with you this morning. First, we see the problem among the crowd. Secondly, we see the solution among the crowd. And thirdly, we see the result. The problem, solution, result. If if you're reading the Bible in your quiet time, you can always ask those, what's the problem, what's the solution, what's the result? So let's begin by looking at the context of John chapter 6. It says this, After these things... Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. Here we have to ask the question, after what things? The simple idea is that Jesus is saying, after all that's taken place in chapter 5, after I have, 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 have showed you that I am equal with God, and in last week we looked at all of the witnesses of that, John, the, the miracle and the word, after all of this... They went to the other side. But the, remember, there are three other Gospels which have the same account, which give us great detail. It, this has been a great week because I'm, I've been able to, to, to study four Gospels in one account and, and begin to tie them together and begin to understand them so much better than just one account because there's so much missing here in John 6. But don't misunderstand me. God's Word is perfect. And so he's communicated just what he he meant to communicate. But when we have the account in other Gospels, boy, it really brings to life the account of feeding the 5,000. And so this helps fill in any gaps that may be as we try to understand the timeline of what's taking place. If you recall in chapter chapter 5, we're giving a time frame. When Jesus went up to Jerusalem, John chapter 5, verse 1, it said, After these things, there was a feast of the Jews. Now, we're not told what feast it was, but we know that Jesus went up to Jerusalem for it. And while we're not 100% sure, it could have been the Feast of the Tabernacles, 
which would have given us a time span of about six months between now and the Passover, which was near, as we'll see later in John 6. If it was indeed the Passover in which Jesus went to, then it's about a year's time. And so between John chapter 5 and John chapter 6, there is, there, there is much time spent ministering, healing, doing miracles, healing the sick, teaching, proclaiming the kingdom of God, anywhere from six months to a year. And so he says, after these things, Jesus went away to the other side. There was a great span of time, a great span of work that had been done. We know this again by the other Gospels. This may help explain why there are so many followers uh, that, that arrive when they get across the lake. Because you can imagine how many people he would have captured their attentions by the signs and wonders he was doing over six months to a year's time. A matter of fact, from the departure place to the landing place is about eight miles via land but only four miles via boat. In order for those people to meet Jesus there, it would have shown that many of them would have had to run all the way, nonstop. Now, we know David, Paul, and Josh, they can make that trip no problem. But the average Gentile boy that eats leavened bread, they're a little slower, right? But it just shows you how much they wanted to find and to see Jesus. Maybe not all for the right reasons. But this would explain why there were so many crowds, because there was so much time. A, a six, wor- six months' worth of work had gone by, healing and teaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And so it says in verse 2, large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And so Jesus' ministry is a major public ministry by now. A matter of fact, Mark 6, 14 to 16 tells us King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others are saying, he is Elijah. And others are saying, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. John has been killed by this point. Multitudes have followed Jesus out and they are following him even by foot on this journey as they cross in the boat. Now they are not seeking him for the right reasons, not because he is the Messiah, as we learned last night, but rather it seems because of all of the miracles, because he makes a mad bread. An amazing fish, as we will see. Because he heals the dead. Because he does miracles, they want to see the signs and wonders. Many seek Christ today, and many seek Christianity because of signs and wonders, and that's what they search for. Yet they missed that Jesus is all they need. They miss it. So they arrive on the other side of the lake where some... Uh, see Jesus, and it seems that Jesus wants to rest for a while from this missionary journey. If we go back to Matthew and all these other books, we see 
that Jesus sent these disciples out on a journey, right? A missions trip where he gave them signs and powers and where they healed the dead and forgave sin, right? Healed the sick. They, they, they were busy doing ministry. And so you could see the crowds gathering. But there's something special here as we look at John 6, 3. Then Jesus, it says, went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. It's a neat moment in the, in the, in the story. It's a time and a place in which shows the desire that Christ has for this small group of men in spite of the ever-growing crowds, the need to be alone with them. There on the mountain they sit. They do whatever they do, we're not told. We're not sure which mountain it was that it's taken place, but what we can say is that it the, the word mountain there could mean simple hill country. Now, I've been to Israel, and I've been to the Sea of Galilee, and I've been to the very spot they say, and it could have been, and it's a beautiful place, especially this time of the year when the grass is green. And we went up, and guess what we did? You know, we sat down, right? And we picked grass and watched and looked over the sea. It's a beautiful place. But the idea is that he wanted to be alone with those under his leadership. He wanted them to take some rest. John is setting the stage for this miracle. And he has brought us up to speed on the who. He has brought us up to speed on the what and the where. But now we're going to see the, the when. The text says in John 6, 4, Now Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. It's the celebration of Passover that is near. It's the second of three Passovers in which John has mentioned already. John 2.13, we see the mention of the Passover. And here in John 6.4, we see another mention of Passover. And then later in John 13.1, we'll see yet another Passover. It seems this is the only one that he's not in Jerusalem when the Passover is near. Large crowds of people have been gathering and maybe preparation for the upcoming feast. Many would have made the pilgrims there to together. And so maybe there's large accumulation of people as they prepare to make that journey to Jerusalem. But maybe there's a greater reason that John mentions this. He, he wants to draw our attention to the fact that Passover was near. Why? Because the Passover celebrates the death of the sacrificial lamb. For the people. And Jesus in John 1.29 said what? He is said to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You see, the Passover involved eating of the lamb and the, the bread. And this is one of the central ideas of chapter 6. A matter of fact, in the same chapter, in verse 35, he even claims, I am the bread of life. And so it would be a great picture of God's provision for the people. It's a great picture of what is about to take place. Some call him the second Moses here. And, and if we look in other uh, Gospels, it says that this place is a desolate place. And some preach that Jesus is going to feed the 5,000 and give them bread to eat. as a picture of Moses in the wilderness in which God gives manna from heaven. That may be true. But I'm taking more of a a text approach from what I can see right in front of me. And so we see that this brings us to our first point. We see 
a problem among the crowds. Their time of resting in Christ among the small group has quickly come to a close. And John continues in verse 5, Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread? And so these may eat. The people have found Christ out. They found him pretty quick. They had most likely again walked miles away, and Christ, I believe, shows the people great compassion. Even though they may have been coming for the wrong reasons, they were looking for something that signs and wonders and miracles and healings, but that wasn't the reason Jesus necessarily came. Those all pointed to the fact He was who He claimed to be, the Son of the living God. But Jesus presents Him with grace and compassion. Starting in Matthew, we're told not only did Jesus see them coming, but He ministered to their needs. You know, it's interesting when we watch Jesus work in the hearts of these people. He can see what's going on in their, whole, in their soul. He knows what their hearts are like. And yet He still ministers to them. It's an amazing picture of grace. Matthew 14, 14 says, He saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Mark 9, 11 tells us that they were welcoming them. He began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. And so there is some time frame that we don't find here in John 6 that he leaves out with details that reveal they had been there a good while. And the whole time that they were there, Jesus is ministering to their needs, healing them, teaching them. And all the time, the people we know from Mark nine twelve, we know it's getting late in the day. It says, now the day was ending. And the twelve came and said to him, send the crowds away that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and, and get something to eat. For we are in a desolate place. That means there wasn't no Walmart close by. There wasn't a bakery. But Jesus, knowing the heart of these men, began to teach a lesson. He presents the problem. And the problem is for these men, he presents to two specific individuals that were from this area, that knew the landscape. And so he says to Philip, specifically Philip, where are we to buy bread so these may eat? We're not just going to send them away. A matter of fact, it's interesting, we look at Mark nine thirteen. he says this, he says, let's just send them away. What does Jesus say? You give them something to eat. And they said, we, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. Can you imagine buying food? For, let's just say 5,000 and two. Short end, 25,000 high end. Can you imagine buying food for that many people? It would have been impossible. They've got a problem. The crowd presents a problem. And the problem is there is not enough food for all these people. They do not have the resources that they need in order to meet the problem. But there is a, a much bigger problem. While the physical problem is a big deal, there's a spiritual problem that 
lies below the surface. This is what Jesus is trying to accomplish. He knows that these men have a spiritual problem. Why? Because he is all-knowing. John 6, 6 says, This he was saying to test them, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. You see, if we will stop for just a moment this morning, if we will just get honest with ourselves, we will have to admit that each of us can agree we too have the same spiritual problem much of our time. And so what is the problem? That's the question. Philip is a man that resembles us many times. He is a man that calculates every situation alongside of reality. Meaning Philip is a man that, de- that, that, that determines what's doable and not doable based upon his own ability, his own surroundings, his own circumstances. But I'm here to tell you God doesn't work that way. That's man's way. You know, we, again, we, we talk about our expansion and what we hope. When we look at that, we know that is impossible for this little church. Impossible for, for us. But, but I can promise you that that is not impossible for God. Maybe you're, you're thinking, oh, I need to raise support and to go in the full time. Listen, it seems impossible, but it's not impossible with God. So I wonder how many come this morning with some problem in their life bigger than themselves? How many come with problems much larger than you are able to handle? And yet the first thing we do is search for an answer in our own street. How can I fix this issue in my life? You remember what I said. Men are like the gods they serve. Churches are like the God they serve. And the reality of what I want you to see today is that you and I, uh, in, in our lives, we, we, we operate by what we believe about the God we worship. You got problems? There's a solution. But a weak view of God in your life will result in a weak life lived for God. They should have gotten it, shouldn't they? They should have seen it. I mean, these men were with Jesus. They had watched the water turn to wine. They had watched Jesus reveal all of this woman's life at the well. He, I met a man who told me everything that I'd ever done. They had witnessed the official son being healed from afar. They had witnessed the invalid there at Bethesda that had been ill for 38 years. Pick up your pallet and walk. (laughs) They should have gotten it. They should have gotten the fact that Jesus could handle this problem. But what does Philip say? Philip says, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them. For everyone to receive just a little. We got a problem. And the problem is there's 25,000 people without food to eat and it's getting late. 
and they might starve. And we don't have the resources to feed them. You know, as a, as a, as a pastor, I try to be transparent without you getting in all my business, right? But, but if I can just be transparent for a minute. Because I'm not always... I, I'm like these men. I'm like Philip. And let me tell you why I'm like Philip. Because I got a tax bill for $4,000 this week. And not only that, did I get a doctor bill for $4,000. So I have $8,000 sitting on the table. And you know the first thing that I do? Oh, you know, let me see. How much money do I have? Let me, where, what can I sell? What? Right? The first thing I do is what Philip does. I don't have enough money. How do we respond? To the issues of life. There are opportunities that God presents us to place our trust and faith in Him. What I should have said is this. Well, God, you've never failed me up to this point, have you? You and the, the cattle on a thousand hill. You've met my needs. You've provided my every need for 40 years. I'm fixing to be 41 here at 28th. You're not going to forget my needs, and Lord, I'm not going to forget your ability. I remember, God, when you provided when I was in seminary, and I didn't have any food for my kids, and we run out of money, and God, you provided through a man that I had never met before in a miraculous way. I remember those, those David, you remember... You remember those bills that I had that, that got those needs got met when, when, when before we moved here we needed some money and there was some needs that were met by individuals who had no idea what we were going through. Listen, God is an amazing God and He loves you and He cares about you and He cares about your problems and they may seem so big to you, but zoom out. Listen, even a ship looks huge when he's 10 miles offshore. No, he looks small. That's the way it looks to God. Your problem aren't big problems to God because there is no problem big enough that God can't fix, that God can't handle, that God can't provide in. And that is a reality. We are weak in our faith so many times when yet God has been faithful over and over and over. So yes, this sermon was a great reminder for me. I should have warned you to bring your steel toe boots in because my toes are all beat up this week. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Because you've received some information this week that's been overwhelming to you. And it seems impossible. The situation literally is impossible, but not with God. Notice, if you will, John, and how he points to the fact that Jesus sees the need. I love this. They think they know the need, but Jesus has already seen the need. In John 6, 5, he says, Therefore Jesus lifted his eyes, and seeing that large crowd was coming to him, said, Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Huh. It was Jesus that saw the need. Jesus used this to test them. It was simply a test. And I wonder how many of us this morning are simply being tested so that we can be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
Listen, God will make a way for you because he is a God that provides. Now, it may not happen in the way that I expected or you expected, but God will take care of his people. Right? God God takes care of his children in spite of what it looks like, regardless of how helpless the situation seems. Remember, he works all things together for good. Listen, he doesn't make all things good because all things are not good. He works all things together for good. And we know that because God causes, it says in Romans 8, 28, all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Listen, when you are facing the problems of life, remember for the Christian, those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose, God causes all things to work together for good. If I'm diagnosed with cancer, that's horrible news. But if I die, guess what? God calls it to work together for good because I'm going to be live for eternity with Christ. Now, I'm not, I don't want that. Right? But God, God is able. And we must come to realize that He is able. And our default should be to first rely on the Lord, to call on Him, to seek His face, to hit our knees. But Philip, he's like, bro, we ain't got enough money. We got about eight months worth of wages. And we ain't got enough to feed these folks. You need to just send them on home, Lord, so they can go get food. They can find lodging for the evening. Essentially what he's saying is let somebody else deal with their problem. Right? Let somebody else deal with it. But Jesus has compassion. He has a plan. And his plan is not dependent on man or others. God always has a way. And he will use that which is impossible for man to accomplish what only God can accomplish. So that only God can receive the glory. You see, if I had never been through any of those things in my seminary years and even before that, Jennifer and I and in resigning and going into ministry, leaving a very nice paying job. And if we would have never experienced that, I'd lose my mind, wouldn't I? But now I got that in my memory bank, and, I, and, I, and I've built that altar to go back and remember of the way that God has provided so that when I face whatever it is that life brings, I can always be reminded God will take care of me. God will take care of you as well. If you will simply trust in him. Jesus has compassion. The text then points us to one of the other 12 from the area of Galilee coming onto the scene with the grand idea. This is where it gets funny. John 6, 8, 9 says, One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. What are these for so many people? What a great idea. Let's go steal the lad's lunch. I mean, Right? That's an idea. You know what else is it? There's over five. Let's just say, let's, let's go on the large end. There's 25,000 parents and only one is sent with food. Great idea. This ought to make you mom and dads feel something special today. But it, it's kind of an odd statement. I mean, out, uh, seriously, out of 25,000 people, out of 5,000 people, how do they know there's four loaves? And two fishes, right? Two fishes, two fish, sorry. 
I mean, how do they know? You know how many people 5,000 people is? Listen, when I was at Stonebriar uh, Community Church in Dallas when I was doing my internship there, they fit 3,500 in the sanctuary. And you about can't see the people on the other side. But yet they know there's four. It seems like an odd statement if you think about it. But they, again, we have three other accounts that help fill in these gaps. And it clarified why Andrew is saying there is a lad there with five barley loaves and two fish. And Mark six thirty five starts by showing us what's happened when it said it was already quite late. His disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate. And it's already quite late. Send them on their way so they may go into the, country, the surrounding countryside and the villages and buy themselves something to eat. And he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go spend all of our money on bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. So how did they know? Because he told them to go look. So they went out throughout the crowds and they come back to Jesus with just a few loaves of bread. We only have a little food and it's not enough to feed 5,000, much less 25,000. The reality is, is there is a problem among the crowds. They don't have the resources they need to accomplish the tax at hand. I don't only want you to see the problem... I point to the fact that while we see the problem among the crowd, secondly, we see the solution among the crowd. The text says in John 6.10, Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number of about 5,000. Now during the Passover, it's usually March, April, and, and if you've ever seen pictures of Sea of Galilee during that time, it's a beautiful time of the year there. And we know that there's a lot of people there. We know that there's a number of about 5,000 men. So again, Mark 6, 39 to 40 gives us some details and instructions on how they were to sit. We just say, sit down. But, but they give some defined methods of sitting. Could you imagine 5,000 men being told to sit down? I mean, seriously, like, we're going to feed you. Everybody sit down. What are the first thing they're going to do? They're going to run right up to the front. And it's going to be pile on pile of people trying to get to food. But that's, that's, that's an unorganized method, and Jesus is not an unorganized kind of God. He's an organized God. And so Jesus, the author of order, we're told in Mark 6, says, He commanded them all to sit down by groups on the green grass. They sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Right? They were placed in a manner that would allow the order to take place in the midst of the largest public ministry that has ever taken place. Mark 6.10 says that there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down in about a number of 5,000. Now we know from the account of Matthew 14, it says in verse 21, there was about 5,000 men who ate besides women and children. So it's reasonable to think that there were more than 5,000 people. And that's why some come up with 25,000 people. And so while the problem was a very large problem, we have the solution that is right here among them. And they've missed it up to this point. The crowds are about to see something amazing. So he instructs these men to go and to see how much food there is. And then it says in Matthew, they said, we only have five loaves and two fish. And so he says, bring them here to me. 
Matthew 14, 7. And then watch, watch what happens next. This is, this is pretty amazing. Keep in mind, guys, this is the largest public ministry miracle that's ever happened. Right, right here in our text, the largest miracle. Jesus took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also the fish as much as they wanted. Are you telling me that's it? What, there's not more show than that? He, he just distributed? He gives thanks, blesses the food, and then gives all to who seated, all that they wanted. Put yourselves in their shoes. Here you have Jesus. This is where the reality sets in. Jesus has got this group of people, and he's watching them. And he's got five loaves, two fish, and he begins to bless the food like he's about to eat their dinner. Right? Because there's no way. They're all going to eat. And so here he blesses the food. If there was ever a time in which you wanted to peek during prayer, it was that point. Right? Yeah, listen, during prayer time, just peek you out and look at all the kids looking. That's what's happening here. He's saying the blessing and they're going, what are they going to do with all that bread? They're going to eat my bread. The kids' bread. He's blessing the food that is only enough food for a child. These small crackers or small biscuits... Listen, these are not loaves of Captain John bread. And some of y'all don't know what that is, but let me say this. They were not loaves of Wonder Bread. Okay? Um, they weren't big loaves. As a matter of fact, I, uh, Steve, I, I brought one of these because maybe, just maybe, I don't know, I could be wrong, but this is from the dinner last night. Maybe they were just small crackers broken into pieces like this to feed 5,000. Now, let's just say it was a loaf of Wonder Bread. Regardless, it ain't going to feed 5,000 people, is it? Yet he says, sit down, and it says he distributed to those who were seated. He gives thanks and distributes. And the text says they ate until they were full. Matthew, Mark, and Luke say they ate until they were satisfied. One commentator said this is a word that's used in Revelations to talk about gorging. They had eaten as much as they wanted. You see, Jesus was the solution to the problem. He had been there the whole time. He had attained all power the entire time that was needed to take care of the problem that they had faced. But Christ goes through all of this for what reason? To teach them a lesson that I believe he wants to teach us this morning. The people could have gone home. Listen, they wouldn't have died because they didn't eat dinner. If they weren't fed, they wouldn't have killed over. But after a long day of teaching and healings and miracles, Jesus wanted to make one final impact on all who were there, including the twelve. He wanted to point to them the solution. He was the solution. He wanted to prove that he was who he claimed to be. God in flesh. And I wonder this morning how much we go through in life is a test. Because we needed the reminder daily that Jesus is the solution to our problems.
So following this major miracle, verses 12 to 13, when they, had, when they were full, filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left by those who had eaten. Notice, if you will, the precision of the miracle. Now, listen, we are told once they had eaten, there was just 12 baskets left. And I'm not talking about the big baskets that you see full of bread. That's more of a, a tote sack for an individual. There was only 12 left over. Now, these servers... We're not told had eaten yet. They had been busy doing what? Serving. We have about six people who do communion in this church. It takes six people to pass plates in the front and the back, and we run on average 140 strong. And there's 12 to serve five to 25,000 people. Think about that. How long would that take? They had worked. They had served these people. Serving took sacrifice on their part. They were hungry too. They didn't have time to eat. They were too busy serving. Listen, sacrifice isn't something people are willing to do for that which means very little to them. And again, I think it boils all the way back down. Again, men are like the gods they serve. We, you hear me? We are like the God we serve. Jesus served the people. He came to serve, to seek and to save the lost. And these disciples were on a servant mission. And they had not yet eaten. Can I ask you a question this morning? One that I hope steps all over your toes. And this question is, do you have the heart to serve? Because Jesus has a heart to serve these people, and so did the twelve. We should be more like David. When he says, I will not offer anything to the Lord which costs me nothing. These twelve served the multitudes self-sacrificially. And yet God provided perfectly for their needs as well. Listen, sometimes we have to put off what we want in order that others can get what they want or need. And it's a beautiful thing when it happens, when we see men and women and children serving the Lord Jesus Christ through serving the body. And I get it, some are gifted with service. He who serves Serving well in Romans 12. But while we may not have the gift of service, we are called to serve. Just like you may not have the gift of evangelism. You're called to evangelize. These men are great examples. This is a great lesson that was hidden that I didn't see before I studied it. These men served. You know... It's easy to forget that serving takes sacrifice. 
It means that you might miss out on something you want, desire, so that the needs of others are met. I think about the cleaning of this church. This is just the cleaning of this church. And how many people step in to serve and clean this church that we all come to and sit and eat and drink and fellowship and every week we partake in it. It is an amazing opportunity. Just the simple task of cleaning this little church that God has so richly blessed us with. I look out and I see many that have faithfully served the Lord by cleaning. But you know what's really interesting is to look out and see all of those that have really served the Lord by serving Gina and Dale. It's not about cleaning this church. It's about serving the Lord. And it's about serving the body of Christ because there's a family in need. And, and, and it's amazing that we can put that calendar up there and we see names put on it every week to serve. You've served. Your children have served. It's, it's a great picture, these men serving and sacrificing. Listen, God bless them. And I believe that God will bless your efforts. Don't you get weary in serving. I mean, just last night, me and my wife were served. Now, we were served because somebody served in that little room watching our children. So that she could sit together with her husband and sit through the... Passover meal was a great blessing. Some of you serve each week as you teach back here in this room and you teach back there in this room and you teach right here in this room and you serve in that kitchen. And Listen, there's so much that goes into making this thing function well. And each of us has a part to play. And if you're not serving, then I would say you need to pray and ask God to give you an opportunity to serve even if you're not comfortable with serving. Even Miss Margaret Sears serves. She sends out all these cards and these birthday letters if I keep her updated on the uh, you know, right information. We, we all have a part to play in the body of Christ. And I believe that God will bless your efforts. Can you imagine providing for 5,000 people? And having just the right amount left over. Think about that. I mean, I, I'm not, I don't serve in the kitchen. I, I look back at Miss Susan, who faithfully serves in that ministry. Miss Susan, I, I would venture to say there's food left over pretty much all the time, isn't there? Most of the time. And that's only 130. There's just enough left over after feeding 25,000 people to have one bag each for one disciple. Think about the precision of this. I mean, I, I went Friday night and we had a captain's meeting. We served for 120 and guess what? Only about 15 people showed up. So there was that much food left over. We couldn't even get that right. And here Jesus feeds 20 thousand people and there's 12 baskets left over boy how perfect is god's miracle because that's how god rolls god doesn't leave anything out we see the problem among the crowd we see the solution among the crowd but lastly we see the result among the crowd 
John says in 6, 14 to 15, Therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed. They said, Truly, this is the prophet who came into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to take him by force and make him king, withdrew again to the mountains by himself alone. They wanted to make him king. What, what better leader, one that can feed them and do miracles? He can provide healing. He can raise the dead. He can win out the religious leaders. He can create, listen, something from nothing. This was a creative miracle. He had taken something and made something from nothing. Did, did it ever occur to you that he fed bread to people that had never been as a result of the fall? He served dead fish that had never lived. This was, I mean, if you don't like bread, you would have loved this bread. If you don't like fish, you would have said, give me some more of this fish. Because it was perfect. And they knew that. And so they wanted to make him king. But Jesus didn't come to rule and reign as the king they wanted. Not yet. He came to suffer and to die so that you and I might have life, so that you might be able to live with him eternally. What an amazing, amazing story. What better candidate to be king than Jesus? Listen, he will come again. And when he comes again, this time he will reign as king when he comes. He will judge the righteous and those that seek after Christ for what they can gain. And there will be a great disappointment. They wanted him to be their king, and he will, but not in the way they intended. Listen, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want you to know that there is a God in heaven who sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you that you might have life. But you lack one thing, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says you were saved. It's the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in which we can have life. Not your abilities, not your effort, not because you come to church, not because you memorize scripture, not because you read your Bible, but because there was a price that was prayed for you on Calvary in which Christ shed his innocent, spotless blood so that you might be covered. He who who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ loves you and he's given you a way of escape. He's given you your provision and it's through the work on Calvary's hill. Now you believe on him, please, I beg you. Because today is the day of salvation. There may not be tomorrow. Don't let the pride hold you from the kingdom of God that's hidden deep in your heart. Oh, well, I've walked that aisle before. I've prayed that prayer. Listen, this has got nothing to do with salvation. It's about trusting in Christ alone. I've read so many faith surveys from Friday night. 75% sure if I were to die today or Christ were to come back, I'd go to heaven. 75%. Well, what would you have to do? Stop drinking. Live a good life. Listen, Galatians 2.20 says, if we could be saved by the works, then Christ died needlessly. It's not a works-based salvation. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ that comes by faith in Him. We all have a problem. 
We all start out in sin and separation. Isaiah 59, 2 says, our sin has made a separation between you and God. And Jesus has become the one who can make us right with God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in him. The problem, the solution, and the result. The result is that we have Christ. And those who believe will be saved. So let today be the day of salvation. Give your problems to God, because He is able. Let's pray. We want to thank you for joining us on our program today. We pray that you are challenged, encouraged, and hope that you will stay connected with us for the weeks to come as Pastor Stewart walks us through the book of John. If you don't have a church home, Pastor Stewart would like to personally invite you to join their worship service at Family Bible Fellowship in Early Branch, South Carolina. They meet each week at 11 a.m. For more information about the church, visit them at familybiblefellowship.org. Thanks again for being with us and have a great week.